had I put it on paper and said, yeah, let's invest this whole guy's salary on building a YouTube channel, I'd have been like, that's crazy. <laughs> but I mean, that's some of your gut sometimes is the best informant. It makes zero sense on paper, but your gut sometimes knows you better than, than the paper does. You're listening to That Worked, a show that breaks down the careers of top founders and executives and pulls out those key items that led to their success. I'm your host, Callan Harrington, founder of Flash Growth, and I couldn't be more excited that you're here. Welcome back to another episode of That Worked. I'm excited for this week's guest. I'm joined by Ali Schwanke. Ali is the founder and CEO of SimpleStrap. SimpleStrap is a marketing and sales firm that helps you get more out of HubSpot. From CRM strategy and setup to marketing automation and content creation, their services are tailored to fuel customer acquisition and retention. SimpleStrat is also a Diamond Solutions partner with HubSpot and the host of HubSpot Hacks, the number one unofficial YouTube channel for HubSpot tutorials. Ali is a data-driven marketing professional with 15 plus years of experience in B2B strategy and content marketing. Most of all, She's hilarious. We talked a lot about Allie's journey as an entrepreneur, and she gave great insights into the challenges she faced and how she overcame those challenges. We also dove into some hot button questions, such as how do you drive sales and marketing alignment? Should sales development reps report through marketing or sales? And how will AI impact the role of a sales development rep and marketing and sales just in general? Now, I was most excited to hear how she built the top YouTube channel for HubSpot videos. She's turned this YouTube channel into a complete machine, and it's been a goldmine for driving new business to Simple Strap. Taking advantage of YouTube is something I'm very interested in, and I think it's a really underrated lead source for B2B companies. So with that, let's get to the show. All right, today's guest, we are joined by Ali Schwanke. Ali is the founder of SimpleStrat. Ali, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited because you are somebody, you know, I love our sessions when we go back and forth talking about content, entrepreneurship, growing a service business just in general. And one of the areas that I want to kick this off with, I know you had a, a really successful LinkedIn post back in the day, and it was, what is the one question every entrepreneur hates? Well, first of all, let me tell you about my stance on LinkedIn. I'm going to get to that in a second. But second of all, this is this is one of those like examples of it's not a platform to just post things. It's a platform for engagement. And so one of the reasons why this did so well is like, I, I think it struck a chord with people. And that is, I had been two years into what I was doing. I previously was employed and I had gone off on my own. So again, not unlike some folks who go out as a consultant. And the thing I didn't understand at that time was when you leave a company and you start a new company, everyone around you is waiting for you to give up or fail. And they're not doing that on purpose. They're doing it because you had the guts to do something that they didn't have to do. And they hope that if you fail, it makes them feel better about them not taking that risk, right? So the question that everybody, every entrepreneur hates is, are you still doing that thing? Because <laughs> you, you over here are executing like a boss. Like 
think about this. Like everybody at the first of the year, they get up and they're like, I'm going to run a marathon or I'm going to do this. Like I'm launching a new business. And then they silently, uh, six months later, are like, I took a full-time job. Don't tell anybody. Everybody announces the start of things and nobody celebrates the, I'm continuing to execute on the thing that I did two years ago and it's going fine, but I'm not shouting from the rooftops every day like I was when I started. It's so true. And it's funny. Once I got into it. Now, I'd worked a lot of early stage companies, but once I actually founded a company and started my own business, I just have so much more respect for all those companies that were just grinding it out. Yeah. Because it's so hard. I wouldn't have it any other way. And it's the hardest thing to describe, but it's so difficult. Have you found that to be the case with yourself once you founded your own business? So the biggest thing that you realize, especially if you're in an industry like yourself, where you, you're you not starting necessarily this product-led company, you know, you go raise funding and build a product, like you're starting a service business. And service means you're selling knowledge and time in exchange for value. And so you, you go out on your own. And what you quickly realize is that this thing that you really loved is a thing you're going to do like 20% of the time. <laughs> you know, you can out go 80% of the time, which is chasing down invoices and trying to figure out how the tax laws work. And like, oh, crap, I got audited by the Department of Labor. Welcome, everybody. That's a terrible experience. And let me tell you, all of the lessons that I've learned as an entrepreneur come from those hard knocks. If you're not up for that, you're not going to do what you love as a practitioner in a service business if you don't understand how that works. If, if that's the case, you're just going to be a paid freelancer. Right. So that's huge. Uh, It's a good point. And one of the struggles that I had early on was, and I had known this, everyone said, you know, it's it's really lonely when you start a company. And, and I was like, okay, I, I get that. That makes sense. It's not, I don't feel like that's a big enough reason for me not to do it. (laughs) That said, I remember the first time where I got something, I just didn't know what to do. And it was a a very small thing. When I look at this in hindsight, it had to do with an invoice. And I just remember stressing out like crazy. And I was like, I don't have anywhere to turn. And funny enough, I ended up going to one of my close friends and he's like, okay, this is a hundred times better. And then I joined Collective 54 where we had met, which is, I've met a ton of great people through Collective 54 and having that peer network was really important. Did you have that when you first founded Simple Strat? I would say yes and no. I mean, I had other business owner friends that I leaned into. I'd worked in a company I was fortunate when I first started out that advised a lot of business practices and leadership. So I got to be a fly on the wall with a lot of those executive coachings and that sort of thing that I didn't realize at the time was so valuable later on in my career because I got to watch from a lot of, I would do this, I wouldn't do this. And so I kind of kept a journal of the things that I would do as a business owner versus what I wouldn't do. And I will tell you also on the other side of that, if my former boss was listening, he'd agree with me where it's like, when you're an employee, you don't get it. Like if I have my own company, just like kids, when I'm a parent, I'm not going to do it this way. And then you become a parent and you're like, oh, that's probably why you should have done it this way. (laughs) (laughs) The reason why there are curfews is because nothing good happens after midnight. When you're an adult, you're like, yeah, all the bad things happen after midnight. So as an employee, I had some good opportunities there. But when I went on my own, I think the loneliness that you talk about, Kellen, comes from three different areas. One is not having people who understand the new problems that you have. So your former friends who are also employees have employee problems and you're like, yeah, I can't talk to you about this because it's weird. Two, some of the people that are now your friends also somewhat either partner with you or your clients or whatever. So you have this weird place where you can share some stuff and you can't share some stuff. And then the third part of that is just like literally your own ineptitude where you're just like, I didn't realize that I didn't know this and I feel like a complete idiot. (laughs) 
<laughs> and being okay with going into a situation where you're like, you can let that vulnerability down and finding those people you can trust. Like that takes time. That's so true. And for me, it was, I had always operated from a PL. I never, I never cared. All the, the many of the companies I was with were, were venture backed and I never cared about pure cash flow. And then I got into this business like, oh, we just landed a really good contract. Oh, man, this cost a lot to deliver. And that's fine if I got paid on the day that that signed. Yep. That was a rude awakening. What I tell people all the time now is like, look, going bootstraps a great way to go. I love it. I don't know that I would have done it another way, but... Just make sure you're operating off of a, a cash flow forecast as opposed to a PL. What was that moment for you? I'm curious. What was kind of that first moment that you had in, in founding this company where it was, what do I do here? I mean, bringing on your first employee is always that challenge. And so I'll say this a friend of mine says that all advice is autobiographical. And for a long time, I was like, what does it mean? What it means is we give advice based on our own context, within our own paradigm. And so someone may have had a really great experience hiring contractors, and that's how they recommend you build your business is all contractors. Well, then you talk to someone else who has a different experience hiring contractors, and they're like, no, 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 all employees. And so you kind of learn to have your own filter. You run this stuff through. But I hired my first employee and then quickly realized that I'm like, oh, yeah, do I have to report them to the state? How do I do this? Do I have to author health insurance? And so suddenly you've made a job offer and then you realize, I don't know if that's legal. Do I write a job offer? Is that something that they need? And you just get caught up in this situation. And my first hire was wonderful. Absolutely like one of the best humans on the planet. So I completely lucked out. But I've talked to other founders where their first hire was a disaster and they've avoided hiring for a very long time as a result of that. So I, at the time, had an accountant friend and a lawyer friend, is what I say. And they both, you know, they were phone calls away. And I just dug into them as deep as I could. Totally. Having those advisors is huge. And pay for good help, 100%. I'm curious, with that first employee that went so well, did you have a previous relationship with them? Had you had worked with them before? Did that make it easier? Or was this somebody you never knew and just got lucky? I mean, I knew of this person and I always had a healthy respect for him and his work. And at the time he was looking to do something different. And so it just kind of aligned, I think, at the right time. And, you know, when you're an early company, I think you can get away with that. Now, you know, further along where we are, we're sourcing talent all over the U.S. And so we have a very finite job description. We're bringing someone into a role. So I think that I lucked out with that person, to be honest. But at the same time, I was in a role where I knew what I was looking for. And I was looking for really hardworking, Greg and the Collective 54 calls it pioneers. I was looking for someone to pioneer a new thing with me. They weren't coming in being like, what is my job description? And I cannot veer from it. One day I'd be like, go get the mail. It's just you and me, buddy. Go with the mail, you know? <laughs> and he wasn't like, oh, that's beneath me, right? So it just was a good personality fit for the time, for sure. Where did your career start out? What did you do prior to Simple Strat? Well, the question is, what didn't I do? <laughs> That's a hard question to answer. I think if on paper you look at my journey, it looks schizophrenic, but it really just looks like this path that continued to morph into things that built on the next thing. So my first business outside of college was a photography business, and I, I'm really good at visuals, and I was great at that. 
I hated working nights and weekends. Bridezillas are a real thing. (laughs) Bridezillas and naughty children are a real thing. And I did just not have the stomach for like that. Plus, it was about the time that all the mommy photographers is what evidently they were called. Momtographers. Everyone got a digital camera. They were moonlighting as a photographer. And just like the value there, I didn't want to build a giant studio. Bye-bye. So I morphed myself into marketing, into some creative publishing, and kind of just everything led from there. But my first foray was was a photography studio. And that's where my that's also where I learned my first tax law. Didn't charge tax on some stuff, and the Department of Labor will call you about that if you do not do that. So they tend to not like that. As I understand it, they tend to not like that. Yeah. To, I mean, to this point where if I if I anybody with the name of Ruth calls me, I have flashbacks of this terrible <laughs> phone call that I used to ignore. So you knew, did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? It sounds like you did. You know, you went right out of the gate and to found a company or did you kind of fall into it? I would say I didn't know what, if you go back to high school growing up, I didn't know what an entrepreneur was. I didn't really even know what owning a business was. I think we all define the world based on what we interacted with and who was part of our life. And my family had, you know, you go to college, you get a good job, and then you become a supervisor or, you know, a doctor. And I went to school pre-med because I thought smart people become doctors. Mm -hmm. (laughs) A plus B equals C. And what I realized was that I thought business entrepreneurship was owning, this is terrible, like owning a Hardee's or owning a Dairy Queen. Like that's how you owned a business because that's the type of world I was in. And when I started working for this company early in my career, I he was one of the first people that introduced me to the idea that your photography business is something you could have sold had you structured it in a way that you created a business and not a, you just take pictures. So I would say that I, I've always done something on the side, but it took several years trying to think of how many in my career before I was willing to go out on my own. What was it that gave you the confidence to finally go out on your own? Well, <laughs> I don't know if it's confidence. I managed to quit two jobs prior to that with no backup plan, thinking that I just had reached where I wanted to go. And I am a person that likes to achieve. And I reached the top and I couldn't buy into that business. And so I was like, all right, well, I'm out because I had dedicated myself and my soul. I'd get to work at seven, leave at seven. Like, I am here, man, ready to buy in when you're ready for me. And there just wasn't a spot for me. So I I had quit that one startup weekend. And if you're familiar with Startup Weekend, you pitch an idea. It was a great idea. Great. We had built an app in a weekend. And then I learned the really fun lesson of you can have an app that people love, but the value chain actually is the people that pay for it are not the ones that have the pain and vice versa. Welcome to winning the fact that you basically quit your job and have no money now. Um, (laughs) So so that's actually how my business venture started is I just, I was unemployed because I had quit my job at the agency I was at. And I'm like, okay, need to make some money. So that's how I really started. And then Simple Strat as a as an entity started in 2016. Did you jump straight into Simple Strat or were you starting that on the side before going full-time? I mean, you know, I named my company like every really great marketer does, uh, Schwanky Marketing. <laughs> 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 so that was my first foray. That was back in like 2013. And in was 2012, maybe, I named my business that because I just, I was doing consulting. I had no idea what I was doing. People knew me. They knew I could help them with their marketing and sales. And that's about it. So I actually would do more like CMO for hire type work, kind of like you're doing with the CRO side, but it was just helping them structure their marketing strategy, bring them into a department, hiring people, then kind of stepping out. So that was successful, but it was just me. 
and I would bounce around to different companies helping them with that. So SimpleStrat emerged because I realized that the execution was oftentimes a lot harder than the strategy itself. So it just needed to have a back arm to support the strategy. And that's really why the company launched. And you mentioned, you know, the good thing about those contracts you described is usually pretty good cash flow. And it's a nice way to segue into a, a, a bigger business. When did you make the change out of that into whatever came next? Yeah, I had a couple of milestones for myself financially that when we hit this, we kind of do this. And it wasn't like when we hit X amount of cash or X amount of revenue, we bring on an employee. Like that really kind of wasn't it. But that first job that I was telling you about, it was a leadership development company. And I I really was ingrained with the idea that your time as you escalate in your career needs to be worth more and you need to delegate the things that are worth not worth your time. And so that was my idea that I thought, if I'm going to scale this, I can either charge more which then also still means that like Allie Schwanke charges more. Allie Schwanke still makes $0 when she goes on vacation. So trying to provide some leverage for myself was when that really switched. But I would say I also started to get a lot of just, I could see what was possible. And so I think having a better vision, sometimes you don't know what you want until you start seeing what other people either do or what you don't want. And I did not want to be stuck in a freelancer business by myself for years and years and years. So that's why I wanted to build a team. And that's kind of the shift I made. How long were you in this freelancer business before you started to add employees? I mean, it was about four years that I was, you know, I had a couple of big contracts where I would actually be on site with companies a couple of days a week. And I enjoyed that because I was part of their team. But, you know, when you're a company and you're looking at growing, it's like, hey, Ali, do you want to, should we just hire you on? Should we bring you in-house? And that's when I really realized like myself I don't think this is true of everybody, but it's true of me. If I'm in-house at one company and I get really, really deep in one company, I miss a lot of the bigger trends that are happening in the marketplace overall. And I love, I love being out in front of what's happening and advising clients. And so ultimately that just wasn't a fit for me, but that's kind of where I sit now, which is a good spot for me. During those four years, what was it that prevented the business from getting to that next level? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things for me. Personally, I had a very young family at that point. So I've never been a business owner and not had children. I've never been a business professional and not had children. Like I've had a, you know, a small child since I started my career. And I think for a lot of people, and I've had a mortgage, like I've never, (laughs) I've never been a couch surfing post-college live on ramen entrepreneur. Some of these like, you know, hustle and grind type of stories. Like, yeah, I, I hustle and grind like the best of them, but man, I got to have some cash at the end of the day that's more than like a little story and some like F words on TikTok, you know, like I can't do that. So when I was operating in just that solo environment, I had pretty strong contracts, some good revenue that I knew I could support us. And quite frankly, just the rest of it needed to not be touched (laughs) for a while. Like I needed to just execute and support my family and build my reputation, which was a good thing for me. What was the turning point? That's a good question. I remember sitting at my kitchen table and it was New Year's Eve. And every New Year's, I sit down and I do a planning. And this is a behavior and a habit that I got from that first leadership job. And I sit down and I write down everything that happened in the year prior. So not only like, what are the things that happened with family? I go through the months and I start writing, what would I have done differently this year had I known the things that I know now? Like the exercise of what if? What if I did this? How might we do that? And I started to realize that I wanted to live in a world where marketing had a better reputation than what it does now. I mean, granted, this was what, six years ago. I wanted to live in a world that I influenced that for people. And I knew that by myself, I couldn't do that. And so I wrote out this manifesto and I had no name for the company. So it bothered me because I didn't know what I wanted to name it. 
So I wrote this manifesto and a couple of days went by, I got the name kind of came to me, but I thought, this is it. This is it. Like, this is, this is the change that we're going to make. And took very little time to write up an employee job description and just post it online. So I think for me as a, as both a business owner and entrepreneur leader, when I'm ready to make a decision, I just make it. And I can't tell you what it happened. It just, it kind of was a timing thing. And my, this manifesto had to be written and I just did it. And at that point, like you couldn't not do it. Was it driven from, I want to build a business or was that driven from like, I'm feeling a ton of pain. I'm juggling too many things right now. I need help. For me, it wasn't that. It was, I know I can make a bigger impact. And that was the answer to Drake to making a bigger impact was building a team and a company around that. It wasn't financially, things were going fine. I mean, I think again, the challenge of I'm out for a couple of days and nothing happens. <laughs> I was certainly feeling that. Now I'd be lying if I told you that, yeah, Callan, I can go on vacation for three weeks now and nobody needs me. Okay, we're still working on that, <laughs> right? Still working on that. Yeah. But at the time, I think it was all about impact. And I knew that the people I was working with at the time were experiencing great results and changes in their business. And I knew if we could reach more people, more companies with a team, that that would accelerate. Gotcha. So for you, it was more mission-driven than mercenary-driven. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And well, one of the things I'm really curious about, I'd be remiss not to talk about this because you're such an expert on it. When did you start to get more involved with HubSpot? That was 2017. So about a year after we started the company. At that time, I brought on a business partner who, at the time, we had agreed on moving into business ownership together, and he's a minority owner in the business. You know, Ultimately, that was kind of something that we were testing out. But he said, I think that we need to do something that allows us to put a stake in the ground for some sort of expertise. So it was really kind of his driving that brought us into the HubSpot ecosystem. He went through the partner certification. So you know, he was a big catalyst in all of that before I was involved. But I still had pretty strong brand reputation in the industry at that point because I'd built a pretty strong career. I'd been the marketing association president in our local chapter. So I did have some good networks to sell into. When we became part of the HubSpot ecosystem, we, we realized that HubSpot was still pretty new because they just released their CRM that year. But becoming a partner with HubSpot, we thought was like this, you know, all of our revenue problems would be gone because we're <laughs> going to have leads coming out of nowhere. And pff, that was a big giant zero. So, but it did launch us into this, how do we differentiate ourselves? question that we ultimately solved two years later. So overnight success, right? Two years later. Fast forward to two years. What was it that solved that problem? Yeah, we decided, well, it was pre-pandemic. So for folks that leaned into digital content during the pandemic, good for you. But we happened to luckily do that prior to the pandemic. So we leaned into video as a main way to kind of connect people online and then launched a YouTube channel in called HubSpot Hacks. And everybody who had been part of our network before all of a sudden was like, oh my gosh, you guys are the HubSpot people. I'm like, mm -hmm, yes, we are. But we have been for two years. You just didn't know it. Did you jump straight into video and YouTube or did you try other content avenues prior to getting there? What did that look like before that? We did. We tried blogging. And I'll tell you that one of the things we learned one of the things that we learned was that a lot of agencies already were doing a great job. So this is like, I mean, this is SWOT analysis 101, where like, what is outside in the marketplace and where can you compete? What are the gaps? And the gaps were not, the world needs more HubSpot written content. That was not a gap <laughs> that existed. But HubSpot also does a good job of giving their partners content to lead with. And so 
again, if you think about like, all right, any team that goes to the NFL, if, you know, the NFL commissioner gives everybody the same playbook, okay, congratulations. You now have a playbook. Everybody has. So we noticed that a lot, not a lot of people were using video. So that's really kind of why we leaned in. We had written blogs prior to that, but nothing was really like leading to, again, that differentiation aspect. So I had brought on a videographer and I have been bullish on video since quote unquote year of video. I'm doing air quotes. That was, we'll say 2013. That was supposedly the year of video. I'm sorry, Kaylin, every year it's the freaking year of video. And yet we're still talking about it. And what I realized in that was video has typically a pretty high dollar perception. So the market that we were in was like, oh, that's so cute that you guys have video. Yeah, we're just, we're not going to buy that right now. And so we had this videographer on staff that had we not had that full-time person in-house, I don't think we would have started the channel because we wouldn't have the resources. And so it was like, as luck have it, we're just, well, we're already paying this guy. Let's just lean into it. That's literally how it happens. And then we started seeing that people were watching the videos, picking it up. We had identified the strategy in the gap, but until we started actually executing, like, you just don't know. So had I put it on paper and said, yeah, let's invest this whole guy's salary on building a YouTube channel, I'd have been like, that's crazy. <laughs> but I mean, that's some of your gut sometimes is the best informant. It makes zero sense on paper, but your gut sometimes knows you better than than the paper does. You know what? A couple of things that I find interesting about what you just said. So one, if I'm hearing you correctly, you hired this videographer because you were going to start selling video packages to... Oh, I sold one video. <laughs> Which, you know, most people, I would say, would probably just let that person go, save the money. You decided to keep him, roll the dice, and start building high-quality videos on YouTube. And then also, just for the audience, if, if you're unfamiliar, Ali absolutely dominates all HubSpot videos on YouTube. If you search HubSpot on YouTube, you're going to find Ali all over the place. And as people know, you know, YouTube is is hard, but it's also really doable. I'm curious, what were some of those early mistakes that that you had when you when you started to kick this channel off? And what were some of the early learnings that you had? Yeah, one of I'll never forget. One of the first things that I learned is there is a big difference between a video strategy and really great video production. And what I mean by that is there's. I mean, just like if you go out and say, I'm going to find a marketing plan to grow my business. Okay, your marketing plan is going to vary based on what resources you have, what your goals are, what your product is, you know, all of that kind of things, like all of the inputs vary, which means your outputs vary. And if you look at a lot of the advice around growing YouTube and growing a channel, you get these creator sort of insights. And so our videographer, we didn't know this. He was in charge of uploading and he did, again, he did a great job. Like I am forever indebted to his kind of vision and the creative element that he set. But we were posting in the description, we <laughs> we put like the soundtracks that we use and we put the, they were edited in Adobe and like we put all the stuff that creators care about. That, pff, who cares? Like no business owner is like, good job. I'll now work with you because you edited it in Premiere. You know, like nobody cares <laughs> about that. And then I just laugh now because if anybody knows anything about YouTube tags and like SEO strategy, Oh my God, our tags were things like, I just like, this is terrible. Midwest and marketing and, you know, HubSpot. <laughs> I mean, that's like walking into a room and saying, I am woman. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and myself included, I'm not as familiar on, on tags and such on YouTube, but what should those tags be? Yeah. So, I mean, YouTube SEO strategy is boiled down to a couple of things. One is what is the search string or something 
when you're doing a search-driven strategy anyway. What is something that someone would go searching for on how to do in YouTube and how would they say it? So 101, if I was in your shoes, like how to build RevOps, even like, let's start with like, what is RevOps and what does it mean, right? The name of the video would be, what is it RevOps and what does it mean? Okay, that's the name of the video because it's literally the string. Well, so that's the title. You write a description on YouTube just like you do in a blog. And so you write the description and you have to include those strings in your description too. You have to include them as tags. You need to make sure and you have relevant links to any other content, any other videos that you might have called info cards. So all that's gonna be super important. And I, unbeknownst to me that I didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know. And so I had two people on my team running our channel and I got in there about five months in and one, we had enough content at that point to optimize. So people will often say like, oh, you know, our, our program's not working, whatever. And it's like, dude, you're on like day five at the gym. Like you, you know, you lost your water weight. Good job. I can see a little bit of your bicep. We are nowhere near the finish line. And then you just don't have enough data to do anything with. Oh, we're going to analyze the watch times. Dude, you got like a thousand hours. Wait till you get way more than that. So anyway, I re-optimized a lot of that and ran some experiments and started to learn with all that data. And I will say like, as a sales and marketing professional, if you don't have something to learn on, this is why people start their own channels because you can't sometimes experiment on company stuff Clients weren't letting us do some of the stuff we knew that we wanted to do because we didn't have like a, a case study. This is very new territory, Callan. Like who in the right mind is going to give us thousands and thousands of dollars to invest in a YouTube channel if they can't figure out what to do with it? So this has been our experiment. I've been the one taking the risk on it. And now people are asking me like, how did you know? And I'm like, you know what, jerks? I didn't know. <laughs> I totally just bet on it. And it just happened to be a good bet. I can tell you all the stuff that's been a terrible bet, but this just happened to be a good one. Interested in some of the terrible bets. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, the terrible bet, number one, I just told you about, which is, oh, everybody's going to buy video and they didn't. So <laughs> that was terrible bet number one. You know, terrible bet number two was we thought at some point we would lean into helping fitness brands because that's an area that a lot of our team had experience in, we were passionate about. Oh my God, talk about like the worst learning ever is we started ranking for some of these keywords and then we discovered that nobody, seriously, nobody had a budget. Great, now we get all these inbound inquiries that nobody has any dollars to spend with us. That's a great marketing plan if you wanna try that one. <laughs> I mean, we bet on this local user group we were gonna run in our region and unfortunately, where we're based in the country, everybody has a very DIY mentality. So they were just, thanks for the advice. Bye. So, you know, free lunch and free advice. That's a great marketing strategy. I highly recommend that one. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a whole book of these. If you don't have a book like this, you probably aren't trying enough stuff, to be honest. You got to have some failure stories. Otherwise, you're not risking enough. That is so true because you don't figure it out from the successes. And 2021 was a... For me, for sure, I could tell you that was a big one because 2021 was shooting fish in a barrel. I was getting clients left and right. They keep saying, hey, can you do this? Could you do recruiting? Can you do sales training? Can you build out our, our CRM and all these, all these different things? Now, fortunately, that last one stuck. But prior to that, all these other things, I had no business doing any type of recruiting. Yeah. <laughs> like There was no reason to be in there, but I just took anything that, that came across. And then 2022... People, all of the fat was cut from budgets and you had to focus and you had to get serious on that. Now you hit on one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm interested in. So as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but 
at first, everybody was local to where you're at. And I'm in Columbus, Ohio, so I'm not in a huge market either where and a lot of your clients were also local. And then from there, you expanded to go fully remote and then get clients all over the country. Is that right? That's true. The way we looked at it, pandemic forced some of that for a lot of us. But the way we looked at it was when we first started, we knew what business we could get based on our current networks and referrals, which is true of any new service business. That's how you start. But we had a list of like who we would have competed with in our local market. And our goal was to be the best agency that people who wanted to work with us couldn't afford us because we were charging prices that were, we had a reputation enough and we were we were charging what we know nationally was a rate versus like, again, we're, I'm right outside of Omaha. So we, we tend to have a, a lower price or a cost of living here. We came up with a list of agencies regionally that we wanted to be competing against. So when you start finding yourself in the same conversations as XYZ from two cities over, okay, now we've started to build a regional footprint. And then we had a list of agencies that we wanted to be competing against nationally. And I remember that day we we had our first who we beat out in, in a sale. And it was one of those agencies that we had put on that list nationally. And now that's where we are because we have a national footprint. But we went that way because we knew the type of company we wanted to build did not have the customer base locally that would support us. Like we would never have revenue. We would not even have enough customers locally that had the budget, the size, the sophistication, and the know-how to to work with us. Yeah, it makes complete sense. And we feel pretty similar when we look at, especially when it comes to RevOps talent that has really, really niche skills, like CPQ within Salesforce or working with DealHub or different groups like that. You know, there's only a handful of them that are out there just in general, and they're not going to be in Columbus, Ohio. Maybe one by chance, would be here where I think it's so important. I think it's important for all businesses to have some sort of remote presence. I definitely, I understand the appeal of in-person and I loved, I of course would rather meet with somebody in person than digitally, but from a competitive perspective, I feel that you have to, you know, one of the things I'd be remiss not to ask since you are so ingrained on the marketing side is when you look at how sales and marketing interact with each other, what do you feel needs to be there for that to be successful? I think there's a lot of talk around SLAs because that's the word we're supposed to use. Do you have an SLA? I think a better way to look at it is what is the understanding of the marketing function inside of the organization? And the reason I say that is if you haven't yet asked your team what marketing means and why we do marketing at organization or company XYZ, you will find that there's most likely, even if you have an SLA, there's different understandings of what marketing is, what it should do, and how you hold it accountable across the organization. So, and you have to constantly do this. So think about this. If you bring in a new sales leader, maybe a VP of of some, some sort, the organization that they came from, they bring along their understanding of marketing. And so this is why you have so many push and pull of like, we're gonna pull this program, we're gonna start this program because they're, the way they understand that function varies. And where I see marketing and sales fit together is marketing is either a sales support for a sales-driven organization, or it is a lead generation demand function inside of an organization capturing demand that people already know exists. So if you don't have either of those scenarios lined out, you are probably bouncing back and forth between the two and having a lot of inefficiency in how that marketing function works. I'm going to ask you a hot button question. Where should the SDRs or sales development reps report, marketing or sales? I think they should report to sales. Why is that? I mean, ultimately, it depends on how that's coming together. So I've been part of SDR programs where the marketing has zero say on what the SDRs are saying. 
And there's a lot of like, we'll call it brand anarchy, like whatever we get to open up an email. (laughs) So reporting is one thing. I think there needs SDR, you know, it involves a lot of what I'd call repetitive execution. And so you have to have an experimentation mindset as an SDR. You have to have creativity, but you have it within a box, right? This is your message. This is your audience. And here's where you go. It's a numbers driven game. At the end of the day, though, if there's one person that's doing things that are slightly off and they're getting great results, like you as a sales leader should be like, hey, marketing, we might want to talk to this person because they're doing some interesting stuff. Whereas marketing's like, no, they're not. They're off the brand. Like, kill them now. (laughs) I think we have to just be constantly curious because our playbooks change all the time. And as a sales leader, your job is to help help your team get the best results possible. Most marketing leaders, in my opinion, purely my opinion, have not worked in sales. So if you were to put them in an SDR role for two weeks, like they would die and quit or quit, <laughs> quit, quit and die. Like it's just hard. It's just hard. It is. It's a super hard role. And I used to be pretty hardcore that they should only report to sales. Now I've, I've turned on that a little bit. And I think it's more such, there's not in my answer, you know, I, I love the answer that you gave. There's not in my, in my opinion, there's not a right or a wrong. If it's really lead qualification and they're just taking in, you know, the quick, hey, I just want to check X, Y, Z. It might, it doesn't need to be under sales, but if there's more like deep qualification discovery before getting sent over, I like it under sales, but I don't know. It's a question I've been asking. It's a hot button question. It wouldn't be surprised if you get a question on this from the actual interview itself. Well, I mean, let's, let's, if you're going to go there, then we have to go into like, I'm sorry, our, our SDR is going to become obsolete. Isn't AI replacing them, Kellen? Ooh, now we're really in the hot button territory. <laughs> you know, I will say this. I think it's going to be interesting. Enterprise, it's going to be a long time for AI to replace that. Well, you know what? This is a tough one because I think a lot of the functions of it, AI will probably be able to do a lot of that. And I think full cycle sales reps will get larger, ones that are prospecting and closing because they can also run the AI and things like that. If it's an SDR selling into more of a traditional industry, where a cold call still really matters. I don't think so, but we could talk about this all day. That is <laughs> the hot button topic right now, for sure. Yeah. So where does the AI report? Sales or... I'm just kidding. <laughs> marketing. Yeah. 100% marketing. I mean, it's just that because that, and in my opinion, it's, it's so much more content-based. Great question, though. Love that. As you've grown Simple Strat, right? Now you've grown it. You've got a number of employees within the the company what does that next evolution look like for you as the leader of the business? Yeah, it's something that we're working through right now. And I would say, I mean, again, I have a business partner in, in this endeavor, and he has focused a lot on growing a specific side of our business and building some processes there. I'm working on the content side to do some of the same things, but it's elevating myself out of a lot of the delivery so I can spend a lot more time on market research. And by market research, it's really like having conversations and understanding problems in the context of new product offerings. So we've got a content multiplication framework that is, or actually it's a content multiplication toolkit that's coming out in a couple of weeks. And so because so many people like yourself are doing long form content, videos, podcasts, whatever, they're not honestly giving them the distribution power that they need. Mm -hmm. So we're working on, you know, create once and, and multiply forever. And so we've got that, you know, kind of coming out, working on helping folks better leverage LinkedIn. Oh my goodness, it's such a gold, it's such a gold mine. And people think it's all about posting and actually posting is like one one hundredth mm-hmm. of what you do on the platform. So I think 
where my superpower is, is listening to people, terrible to say this, but listen to people complain. <laughs> and then in their complaints, there's typically a problem to be solved. And if I can get myself out of some of the delivery work with better systems and processes in my company, then I can spend my time on that. Yeah, absolutely. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it's we're at that next stage of the business. In order for this company to really be able to continue to grow, expand, add new offerings, I need to be out of the actual delivering the service on behalf of our clients. And I know you're a lot far removed from that, but all the way out. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think I'll still be involved in in some of the things where, you know, in a service business like ours, people do pay for time with the founder and they do want some of those ideas and fresh perspectives. But from where I sit, I'm looking at, okay, how do we run meetings at Simple Strat? And what are the five types of meetings that we have? And how do I make sure an employee is quote unquote certified to hold one of those meetings? And it would be consistent across the organization. And I would say in the last probably three to four months, I've started building out all of these things in Notion. And we've got a strong, a pretty strong initiative here in quarter two to really make sure that that gets, like we have we have a webinar series launching. Allie is doing the first webinar, but Allie's not going to do all the webinars. So how do I certify people to host a webinar at the same level I would and not make you want to go to sleep? <laughs> Simple Strat does not put on webinars that put you to sleep. That is not something that we do. So how do I make sure that that doesn't happen? Absolutely. Last question, if you could have a conversation with your younger self, age totally up to you, what would that conversation be and what advice would you give them? Take bigger risks sooner. We always talk ourselves out of risks so we go into this like worst case scenario planning. And the further I've gotten my career, one, the worst case scenario, nobody planned on COVID. And if your business survived during COVID or you you made some significant life progress during COVID, Welcome to the thing none of us ever figured out that we would be able to do. But two, you're much more resilient than people might think you are. Like everyone wants to talk about failure. Your failures are just learnings. So take bigger risks sooner because you execute at the speed of learning. And if you take a long time to learn things, you just, you grow slowly. That's excellent. Starting my own business was a big fear of mine. And even the first couple months of doing it, it was on my mind of, oh my God, this could fall apart at any time. And then for whatever reason, that just started to become less and less and less and less. It didn't mean that the risk still wasn't as great. I just didn't care as much. I thought it was really interesting. So I love that advice. Allie, as always, it was great talking with you and I appreciate you coming on the show. You gave so much great advice today. Yeah, thanks. Well, I'll have to have you on my show and we'll talk about the AI slash SDR conversation maybe a little bit deeper. I love it. <laughs> I'm 100% game for it. Deal. Awesome. I hope you enjoyed Ali and I's conversation. I loved hearing the strategy behind the YouTube channel that Ali built. It's definitely a route that I want to try myself. If you want to learn more about Allie, you could find her on LinkedIn in the show notes. Also, if you like this episode, you could find me on LinkedIn to let me know. And if you really want to support the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify is very much appreciated. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll see you next week.